Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backyard Geology Canada Edition. I am your host, Serena, back for another bonus episode. Today, I'm back in Kelowna, British Columbia, to check out the Canadian Cordillera Mountains. Before listening, tune into Episode 8 of Backyard Geology Canada Edition to get a rundown of Canada's most famous mountains. The Western Canadian margin is home to a long-lived tectonically active subduction zone responsible for the uplift of the Cordillera Mountains. Here in Canada, we see good exposures of the North American Coast Mountains and the Rocky Mountains, though the entire Cordillera chain actually stretches nearly 18,000 kilometers down the western coast of both North and South America, making it the longest mountain chain in the world. Today, I am joined by Professor Kyle Larson in Kelowna, BC, to talk about the Canadian Cordillera and how they are studied. Hi, Kyle, and welcome to Backyard Geology. Hi. Before I started studying geology, I kind of just lumped all the mountains out on the West Coast into the Rockies, and I wouldn't be surprised if others still do that today. As I went over in the previous episode based in Kelowna, there are actually two distinct mountain ranges formed kind of in in pretty different ways, which are east and west of Kelowna. So between the Coast Mountains and the Rocky Mountains, do you have a favorite? Uh, I grew up near the Coast Mountains, so I'll, I'll then ski the Coast Mountains. So I'll give a nod to the Coast Mountains for uh, for utility. Maybe the maybe the Rockies for beauty. Um, they're a little bit more accessible, a little less rainy most of the time. Okay, excellent points. So you're a team coast, but you appreciate the lack of rain in the Rockies <laughs> and the beauty. Good to hear. Would you please introduce yourself to listeners? Yeah, um, I'm, uh, well, as, as you said, my name is Kyle Larson. I'm a professor um, who studies tectonics and structural geology at the University of British Columbia's uh, Okanagan campus in, in Kelowna, BC. Um, most of that work is, is basically looking at how mountains form. And we do this in a, in a variety of different ways in a variety of different settings. So anything from the Canadian Arctic to uh, the Nepalese Himalaya. And so that's what uh, my group and my students and colleagues have been working on for Oh, geez, the past about 11 years now, I guess it's been since I since I started this as a, as an academic professor. Yeah. Okay, so your specialty is structural geology and tectonics. So how do you specifically in your group go about studying mountains and studying mountain building events? That's a, that's a massive question, um, pun intended. Uh, the um, Specifically for me, so there's a lot of different avenues that you can go in, in, into in geology in terms of specialties. And maybe I'm indecisive, but I never really went into a specialty. Now we've said I'm a structural geologist, tectonist, but really what that means is I'm, I'm kind of a jack of all trades and master of none for the most part. Anybody who says that they study tectonics, maybe they have some a pet specialty. But... Tectonics is a big, it's a big thing, also pun intended. yeah. <laughs> and I, the thing about tectonics, at least that, that I've found, is that in, in order to, well, I guess the way that I do it, in order to do it the way that I do it, is I kind of have to understand a little bit of everything. And so when you ask the question, well, how do you go about it? It's really using whatever tools are necessary to understand the geological processes that we want to have a look, a closer look at. 
And so, you know, from the, it kind of started on the structural side of things, looking at microstructural deformation, looking, learning and thinking about the kinematics of how a mountain belt is assembled. And in order to understand that aspect of it, then you have to bring in the idea of, well, what temperatures and pressures were these, were these things happening at? What does it mean when we have rocks of different pressures and temperatures juxtaposed against other packages that have a different history? What about the timing? When were things moving? So all of these things become important um, bits of information that we have to glean from kind of other sub-disciplines within geology. So I guess my approach would be holistic, <laughs> wherein we're looking at geochemistry, we're looking at metamorphic petrology, we're looking at structural geology, we're looking even more now, more so at, uh, at geochronology. We actually have a geochronology lab that we've We've started up here at the at University of well in, in Kelowna at the university um, because it's so integrated now with everything that we do. So yeah, <laughs> jack of all trades, master of none. I like you using the description of holistic, a holistic approach. So it sounds like with this, you need to have a lot of collaboration. I'm a big fan of collaborating with other scientists. So do you would you say you have multiple collaborators, each with sort of their own specialty? Yeah, uh, for sure. That's exactly what it is. So I, I almost feel like a research coordinator at times, just kind of herding cats through through different types of analyses and or, you know, talking to co-authors who, who are the specialists in, in those areas. So, you know, we have people like uh, Carl Gamet at Laval or uh, Felix Gervais at Tecal Polytechnique um, that we work with for uh, metamorphic petrology or Brendan Dick, who's now at, uh, at the university here in, in um, in Kelowna, um, we work with other people across across the country and, and internationally with um, with geochronology. So John Cottle has been a longtime colleague. We've published on thirty papers together. He's down at uh, uh, UC Santa Barbara down in uh, down in the states. So yeah, really, what I try to do is to try to you know I, I, one of the most important things. Well, important. I don't know if that's the right word, but one of the things that I try to be aware of is where my limitations are. Uh, and I and where I see those limitations, that's where I reach out and try to work with people who are experts in those fields. Nobody can can be a world expert in everything. And so maintaining those collaborations and nurturing those collaborations not only make it you know useful for me from a research point of view, but when we have students involved, it allows those students to learn from the people who they should be learning from, not mean kind of half-baked ideas about what you know metamorphic petrology should be. They actually talk to metamorphic petrologists and learn. Um, what's happening fundamentally from them. So, yeah. So yes, collaborations. That was very well put. So the mountains are too big for one person. <laughs> you cannot simply be a mountain geologist. Uh, no. <laughs> the previous episode based in Kelowna focuses on the coast mountains and the Rocky Mountains. Can you give listeners a very a brief summary on the differences that we see moving from the West Coast inland to the Rockies? Keyword, keyword brief. Yeah, not many of my answers are brief. Um, so most of British Columbia is an amalgam of accreted terrains, geological terrains um, that are variably exotic or somewhat related to North America. And the Coast Mountains is basically one of, it, it comprises one or two of these terrains that has been intruded by uh, a big set of baffles related to subduction off the West Coast. So it's related to the accretion and docking of those terrains and um, crustal, crustal generation through magmatic addition. 
Whereas the Rocky Mountains is kind of like the bulldozer effect. We had this big uh, paleozo or with this big passive margin off uh, that was deposited off the west coast of Laurentia. And all these accreted trains, kind of the classical view of it is these accreted trains were kind of acted like bulldozers and basically pushed up these sediments into big massive thrust sheets. So end result is the same. We have mountains in both. But what is what comprises those mountains in terms of the types of rocks and the pressures and temperatures that those rocks record, at least the rocks at the surface record, are significantly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They were formed by by different processes, although they were the same tectonic events on the West Coast caused these different processes. I know that microstructure of mountains is studied at, at UBC Okanagan. Sure. I'm really interested to hear about mountain microstructure. Can you comment on the microstructure differences that we see again from West moving inland? <laughs> it's kind of akin to asking me what a New Zealand apple tastes like versus uh, an apple that's grown in British Columbia. If they're both gala, they both taste the same. One is grown somewhere, one is grown somewhere else. And so when we're talking about microstructures in general, the microstructures are not a function of where they're generated. They're a function of... Um, kind of the deformational characteristics. And so we can find similar deformational characteristics, both, you know, in one mountain belt or one part of a mountain belt and another part of a mountain belt. Um, in general, given that the coast mountains seem, you know, typically are exposed at the surface now are typically exposed hotter and let's see, rocks that have seen higher temperatures and higher pressures, we would see microstructures associated with those higher pressures and higher temperatures than we do in the Rockies. Um, so we can get into what exactly that means, but, but really it's just a function of, um, the conditions of deformation that are kind of preserved in those mountain belts right now, or those different parts of, of the origin right now, um, doesn't really answer your question, but maybe if, if you can get, want to get more specific, we can. So the conditions that the apples grew in. The type of apple, I guess, <laughs> like if we're talking about quartz deformation, Yes, the type of apple, the type of deformation. Yeah. So, for example, you know, I've seen we, my group has done work or is currently doing work um, on rocks um, a little north of here near Revelstoke, or north of here being Kelowna, but in, in Revelstoke in that part of the world. There's a beautiful um, big thrust fault, um, or what we think is a thrust fault named the Monashi Thrust or the Monashi de Calmont. And it's a nice big thrust fault. And we look at um, quartz deformation uh, textures and, and characteristics from that fault. And it's basically exactly the same as what we see for rocks that were deformed at similar pressures and temperatures in the Himalaya in Nepal. So we're kind of, you know, location agnostic as long as the conditions under which that deformation took place are similar. And what I mean by that is we're talking about similar pressures and temperatures and maybe something like, you know, water content and strain rate and things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the, the conditions and the type of deformation that is going on. Yeah. So another question about microstructure, what is, what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages? The study in microstructures? microstructures of mountains yeah the, the advantages are are, are many full um some some of the most useful ones is that we can you know we go out into the field and we observe rocks at one scale and that's kind of the field scale you know kind of looking at it at the kilometer scale the things that you can see with your binoculars things that you can see with your eyes and then kind of the thin or sorry the outcrop scale and you know when we come back or maybe while we're in the field if we're there for a while we can kind of put those together on more of the kilometer or a little bit more of a regional scale in the field but um 
what we can observe obviously is the micro, the micro scale in the field. Um, and so when we bring specimens back that we've maybe collected out there of interesting rocks, it gives us a completely different view of what those rocks actually record, right? We see kind of one scale of how things record and it's like looking at your hair underneath the microscope. Your hair has kind of a look to it when you look at it in a mirror and maybe you brush it and maybe, you know, mine's getting a little bit more gray or starting to drop out a little bit. That's one thing. But if we look at it under a microscope, it looks completely different. And so we gain a whole different appreciation or a whole different sense of, or we can ask and answer completely different questions by changing the scale of observation. Now, fortunately, what seems to be the case, and you know, this maybe this will be disproven at some point in time in the, in the, in the future, but what seems to be the case is that the observations that we make oftentimes at the micro scale can be scaled up to the larger scale. That's not always going to be the case. There can be things like strain partitioning and, and, and funky little things that happen wherein the strain that we look at at the micro scale is not representative of the, of the overall strain picture, the overall deformational picture. But oftentimes by looking at that microstructural scale and by looking at multiple samples at that same microstructural scale, we can kind of piece together a, a different aspect or additional information that we wouldn't otherwise be able to, to grasp. And critically, when we're talking about this microstructural stuff is we can start to assess things like, um, you know, some of these things can be assessed in the field, but it gives us another mechanism, another tool to assess things like a shear sense. So whether, you know, things are top to the north, top to the south, dextral, sinistral, that kind of stuff, the kinematics. And it also allows us maybe to look at things like vorticity. So how much simple shear do we have? How much pure shear do we have? How much, you know, side to side shearing versus squishing we might have in these rocks or other things like the kinematic vorticity or crystallographic vorticity axis, which is the axis around which these rocks are rotating. And all of these things, when we put them all together, kind of act as fingerprints for different processes. And so by integrating that microstructural, um, those microstructural data, those microstructural in information, we can build up a better fingerprint of what those deformational processes are like in different parts of different orogenic belts. I'm really appreciating the analogies that you keep making. <laughs> okay. they're, they're quite useful. Okay, so microstructure is like fingerprinting for mountains. Yeah, basically. And specifically with microstructure, what, I mean, this is probably another big question, but what specifically are you looking at? Does it tend to be metamorphic petrology under the microscope, looking at deformation in individual mineral grains? Yeah, so a lot of kind of my more, my specialty would be looking at uh, deformation in quartz, um, and part of this is is because you know quartz is fairly abundant in most rock types, and so mm -hmm. oftentimes you know we're going to be able to unless it's mafic rocks, whatever, uh, we're going to be able to look. At, there's going to be quartz in there, and quartz tends to respond uh, to deformation in fairly consistent ways, and it starts to respond to deformation at relatively low temperatures. If we you know, quartz maybe will start to respond to deformation at temperatures of, you know, 300, 350 degrees. Um, it can start to dynamically recrystallize then and will continue to dynamically recrystallize all the way up to, you know, excess of, of 700 degrees. Uh, whereas feldspars, if we look at feldspars, they don't dynamically recrystallize at those lower temperatures typically. And so we kind of miss out that, that lower temperature strain history if we start looking at feldspars or garnets or some of these other things. So Quartz kind of spans that um, temperature range of interest for a lot of, of the deformational processes that we seem to find evidence for kind of like mid-crustal deformation where a lot of the action seems to be happening for, you know, or in these orogenic belts. Excellent. You answered the, the next question I was going to ask, which is why, why quartz? 
So quartz is kind of this special little mineral that covers all the temperatures that you're interested in these mountain building events. Yeah. And, and people have been looking at it for a very long time, you know, studying what quartz does when it deforms, how it deforms, what slip planes are active and what it means when those slip planes are active and modeling it. Like it's been really well studied, which is kind of provides a, a really nice base of operations. If you're going to look at a mineral, it's a lot easier to look and examine a mineral that, that is fairly well characterized and fairly well known. Um, rather than starting out with something new, because then you have to build that base of understanding up. So with using quartz, we're kind of already have that baseline. People have the theory, people have kind of understand why it deforms the way it does. And so we have the advantage of being able to just to say, well, this is how it's deforming. This is what that means versus why is it deforming that way already? Perfect. I, I can see why it would be a good mineral. Your main area of study is the Himalaya-Tibet Karakoram system throughout Nepal. Having visited that area, how do these mountains compare to the Canadian Cordillera on the macro scale and the micro scale? <laughs> That's, um, yeah, you ask a lot of big, question, big questions. And Well, we're talking about mountains, so <laughs> they have to be big. Um, but uh, honestly, like that, that question is kind of at the core of, of what my research group is looking at, not specifically talking about um, the Himalaya versus the, the Cordillera, but trying to understand the mechanisms that are those common mechanisms that result in or that are active during um, orogenic events or mountain building events. Um, and yeah, we, we've been, I've been working in Nepal now since for 17 years now, which dates myself significantly. But um, if <laughs> anyway, people can go look up if it's not a video podcast, people can go look up pictures of me and see uh, how my hair is great over the years. But how do they relate? Well, the Himalaya is a really interesting place because the Himalaya oftentimes gets looked at as kind of the type example of a continent-continent collision. And there's a lot of people working there and a lot of different hypotheses have been put forward for um, maybe new ideas about how uh, strain, how deformation is accommodated in big orogenic belts. Uh, one example of this was, was an idea of almost 20 years ago now, this idea of channel flow or about 20 years ago now. And uh, basically the idea of channel flow is that you have this uh, uh, low viscosity mid-crustal layer that flows independent of the material above and below it. And it flows in response to a lateral pressure gradient. So basically the idea in, in the Himalayas is that you have overthickened crust in Tibet and you have this weak mid-crustal layer, the overthickened crust basically squeezes down in a vertical sense and that middle layer has to go somewhere. And you have this massive, uh, you have this uh, constant, this monsoon uh, climate on the Southern flank of the, of the Tibetan plateau. And that kind of acts as like an escape valve removing material and allowing that lower, um, that low viscosity layer to move to the South and basically escape independent of the movement of the upper and lower um, crust kind of that bounds it. And so when this was kind of identified and people were really starting to look at this um, <laughs> back in the 2000s, early 2000s, um, people got really excited about this idea and then everybody started finding evidence of similar type deformation all across uh, different orogenic belts across the world. And one of those places was the Canadian Cordillera. And so, you know, wherein, whereas the Canadian Cordillera is kind of an accretionary origin where we have the successive accretion of a bunch of different terrains all kind of piled up on the west coast of Laurentia or North America and, and the Himalayas is this 
India uh, colliding with Asia, continent-continent collision, it seems like there might have been very similar processes, regardless of the fact that they seem to be relatively different um, at kind of that macro scale. So that's kind of, you know, there are some potential similarities and we're, we're looking, actively looking at some of these similarities and some of the work that we're doing now. Um, and those similarities seem to extend out into some more recent uh, different, or sorry, more recent models of, of how the mid-crust was assembled in, in the Nepalese Himalaya, wherein we, seen these, we see these kind of cryptic structures or structures that are very difficult to identify in the field. But when we come back and we look at the um, geochemical, sorry, the metamorphic signatures and the geochronological signatures, we can actually see distinct um, units. We can see distinct for lack of a better term, thrust sheets within the exhumed mid-crust. And we think we can start, sort of see very similar things uh, in um, the Canadian Cordillera up, well, in the exhumed metamorphic, sorry, in the exhumed former metamorphic core of the Canadian Cordillera as well. From a microstructural standpoint, we kind of talked about that earlier, wherein the microstructures don't really care what's happening at the tectonic scale. What they care about is what temperatures and pressures that they are being asked to deform at now. And so we see, you know, similar to pressures and temperatures in various different parts of the Himalaya and various different parts of the Canadian Cordillera. And where we see those similar pressures and temperatures, we see similar deformation features. Yeah. So we can kind of approach it in, in similar ways, developing, as we talked about before, those fingerprints for those deformational processes. And then we can cross compare and see if they actually are similar or not. So I'm, I'm interested. I can see how the... So... The coast mountains are caused by a subduction zone. So where we have oceanic crust that is diving under the western coast of North America. And then the Himalaya are from a continental continental collision. So it's interesting that you see some of the same stuff happening. What about the Rockies, which are, you know, the bulldozer effect mountains? <laughs> yeah, the, the, what we see with the Rockies are the oh, one is interesting difference in the Rockies and you know, maybe what we're talking about with the coast mountains, um, which is kind of subduction and, and collision related, but more mm -hmm. uh, uh, terrain collision related. And the Himalaya, which is that continent, continent collision, although there's, you know, that continent, continent collision is driven by subduction there too. So we always have that uh, in the back of, the, of our minds as well. Is that the Rockies, what we're really looking at there is uh, thin crust or thin skinned upper crustal deformation. We're dealing with brittle structures for the most part, uh, other yeah. than the folds. Um, and so we're only kind of looking at the upper part, how the upper part of the crust would deform. Whereas when we're looking at a lot of the rocks in the Himalaya, we're looking at least the stuff that I've studied um, is we're looking at the mid crust. So the deformation in the middle crust or what the former mid crust was is going to be significantly different than the deformation in the upper crust. And this all has to do with in the mid crust, we crank up the heat we crank up the pressure, we increase the likelihood that rocks are going to deform in a ductile or cohesive manner. Whereas if we get into the brittle upper crust, we are much cooler, we have much lower pressures. And so now rocks are going to deform in a different mechanism or by different mechanisms. And most often in a more brittle failure environment or way. So we end up with these brittle thrust faults in kind of the upper crust and we end up with more ductile uh, thrust naps or different types of deformation channel flow potentially in the middle crust stuff. So we're kind of yeah. looking at different sections of the crust. So they're not necessarily comparable. Right. Yeah. That, that's why they're the Rockies. They're brittle and well, yeah. rocky. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. This, yeah. The Himalaya are made of uh, marshmallows, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The Himalaya and the, and the coast mountains in comparison. Yeah. So, 
Uh, no, that's actually, that's what I use to describe it now to people is like the Rockies are genuinely rocky. Like it's been rocks that have been brittily deformed. And then Mm -hmm. in comparison, uh, the, the coast mountains, then it's stuff like Himalaya are soft, I guess you could say. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, they were, they were certainly deforming in a more squishy fashion. Although, you know, you look at the, the folds in the rock. More temperature, more pressure. Yeah. Yeah. We have to be a little bit careful about saying the Rockies are, are brittle because there are lots of folds in the Rockies and those are not brittle, right? Folds are ductile by, by their very nature too. So it's, I don't know, it's all complicated when, yes. when you start looking and comparing. Oh, absolutely. I was, I mean, even writing the, the, even doing the first podcast based in Kelowna, I was like, I want to divide them into two mountains, the coast mountains and the Rocky <laughs> mountains, but that's, that's absolutely not enough. Yeah. Yeah. This is way too large scale. So <laughs> yeah, making these, the generalizations that I would like to, for the sake of these easy listening podcasts is not yeah. possible. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. You can't minimize our decades of research into 15 minute sound bites, I guess. No, absolutely not. I realized we mentioned something earlier, but we did not cover it. Disadvantages to studying microstructure. Yeah. Yeah. The disadvantage I see, or a disadvantage I see, potential disadvantage I see to studying microstructures is the fact that you want to be sure that what you're looking at at that micro scale is representative of what's happening at the macro scale. In some cases, you can be reasonably, you know, if you if if you are looking at a whole bunch of samples across a few kilometers or you know multiple tens of kilometers, and they're all showing you something very similar, then you can be reasonably, you know, reasonably sure that what you're looking at is probably representative of of what's going on at a large scale. Um, but that need not necessarily be the case. There's lots of evidence of um, you know at, of, of flow partitioning at different scales, even at the microstructural scale. Um, we can see flow partitioning within a single thin section, let alone when we start to expand out into the kilometer scale. And I think, you know, you have to be able to see the forest for the trees for a very, very poor analogy, I think, wherein, um, yeah, you have to know if you're looking at just one big tree all on its own or whether it is actually representative of what's going on with everything else. And so that involves, uh, I think, a lot of context around what you're looking at from a microstructural point of view and having. Um, well, seeing it from, we'll come back to that word holistic, seeing it from a more holistic view in concert with other data sets is usually helpful too. So what's going on with the pressure and temperature? What's going on with the geochronology? Um, yeah, does it all make sense? Or does it not? Well, I guess it would depend on what your goal is in terms of your research, in terms of what scale yeah. you want to look at, because, you know, large scale deformation could be very different from the outcrop scale deformation that you're seeing in that area. Yeah, it really does depend on the research questions that you're trying to answer, mm-hmm. for sure. And 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 your the need to be careful about what you're discussing, what you're thinking about when you're transferring from one skill to the other is also changes depending on what questions you're trying to answer. If we're just researching what happens at the micro scale, then we don't care how it translates to the large scale. But if our main concern is what's happening at, at the orogenic or the mountain scale, then we really have to make sure that we're dialed into um, understanding whether what we're looking at is a reasonable representation or not. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that that makes good sense. I could see how that could get could get me frustrated as a geologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of nuance, and sometimes people don't agree about what is the nuance. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you so much for joining me today, Kyle. It was really interesting to hear about the different considerations you have to make when you are studying mountains. And also, I was really interested to hear about mountain microstructure. That's that's why I reached out to you. <laughs> I was interested to learn about that. So I'm glad to hear you're a collaborator. I'm glad to hear you have this group going and that there's uh, people like you taking a look at our mountains here in Canada. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been super nice to, to actually talk to somebody about this stuff rather than just sitting in my basement alone while my family goes on and does about their day upstairs. So thank you for the opportunity to open my mouth a little bit. I am always down to talk about rocks. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Yeah. Kyle studies the mountains, but he doesn't do it alone. Such large geologic structures require an interdisciplinary approach to untangle millions of years of deformation and uplift. And sometimes the smallest microscope slides can help delineate the largest of structures. Of course, if you're ever on the western coast of Canada, don't forget to differentiate between the coast mountains and the Rockies. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your family and friends. Backyard Geology Canada Edition is part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. You can find more episodes from the Geology Podcast Network wherever you subscribe to your podcasts.